Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello, my friends, and welcome to episode 4-411, you get the 411 of the Run Run Live podcast. And like I mentioned last week, 411 and 412 are out of order due to the forecasted recording sequence being different than the actual recording sequence and me not wanting to go move files around. But, you know, you don't really care about such things, do you? You care about more important things like running past your house at the end of a long run to pick up that last point zero zero three miles because you'll be darned if you're going to enter 6.97 miles into your log, right? Yeah, I know you. Today we have a very good interview with Katie. I'm going to go with Sherat. I think it may be Sherat, but, you know, I like Sherat. Sounds sort of French who is the, <laughs> I forgot, it was three weeks ago since I interviewed her, who is the front person, the leader for Back on My Feet, the CEO. And this is the organization that helps homeless individuals by leveraging the transformational power of running. Pretty cool. And we have spoken with this organization before over our history. We have a history. We have a shared history. I was so fascinated by their program that I chased down the initial leadership team for an interview back in episode 89, which would have been like 10 years ago. And then I interviewed one of their recovering addicts, one of their, I guess they call them clients, in episode 167. So if you are interested, we've got multiple sample points in the life cycle curve of this organization, this program, from its birth to where it is now. That's kind of nice, huh? It's what longevity does for you. And I guess it's a testament to how effective and resonant this program is that it grew from the nascent good idea of one runner in Baltimore to the professionally managed multi-city international manifestation of today. And I was interested to ask Katie about that progression. Katie is a professional, and you can hear the media coaching in her responses. But I think we did a good job of going over some good questions that I truly wanted to understand. So yeah, I think you'll enjoy this. Uh, my training, 
not going great. I've still got this troublesome high hamstring tendinosis that I did to myself training for Boston in the spring, and it's really curtailing my ability to push the pace or climb hills at pace. And it's fine until I load it, and then it screams back at me. And I'm currently working diligently through the best way to rehab it. That being said, I have been getting some good, if not uh, intermittent, volume in. I'm trying to get two longer runs of, you know, 8 to 10 miles in during the week, and then get a bike ride on Saturday, then go longer on Sunday on the tired legs. But it's a bit unstructured, and I do feel a bit adrift. I'm working without a coach here, working without the safety net. It's getting hot and humid up here, and the bugs are out, and this makes trail running a bit less enjoyable. And I tweaked my hamstring Tuesday night. Yep, I'm limping around a bit right now. It was a hot night. I'll give you the brief I'll give you the brief story. I won't give you I ran a race, you know, my say yes to anything phase I'm going through. So there's there's this summer race series that many folks from my club and it's near my office, relatively near my office. So I decided, hey, I'll run over to the race, run the 5K, and then run back, right? This is one of those Chris ideas. So I jogged over. It was about four miles away. And like I said, it was hot. It was okay. It was a nice, easy warm-up. I felt good. Met my friends. Got my bib. Lined up for the 5K. No big deal. I just kicked it off at a solid tempo pace. I felt really good. Clicked off the first mile around a seven-minute mile, working hard, not killing myself, lots of downhill. And then the course turns and climbs a little hill over a bridge, University Bridge, over the river. And as I was leaning into that hill, something went ding in my left hamstring. I did not stop running, but I slowed down to a pace where I wasn't loading the hamstring and then <laughs> limped it in. I got passed by a lot of people at that second mile. So I had to get a ride back to my office because I couldn't run back to my office. Uh, two days later, three days later, still sore, but I think it's getting better. I think I'm going to have to take about a week off. So another project. I listen to a lot of history podcasts, my friend. I like history podcasts. And when I find a new one, I typically start at the beginning and I listen through until I'm caught up. Currently, I'm working on two good ones. One is the history of Byzantium, and the other is the Viking Age podcast, among other history podcasts that I subscribe to. So the interesting thing to me, when I get to listen to them from the first show all the way through, you know, a couple hundred episodes, is the pattern. There's this arc to a successful or reasonably successful podcast, right? They start out as sort of tentative and unsure of themselves, and then they start to get positive feedback, and they you know, they start to find their stride, and they comment with amazement on the 100 listeners, then the 1,000 listeners, and then the 10,000 listeners, and then they start to think, wow, this could be a full-time job for them, and they start looking for revenue with the Audible ads and the Patreon page and the iTunes reviews. And at some point, they become quite pleased with their progress. And they start having that Q&A session about why you got into podcasting and where they got the theme music. And some, some even quit their jobs. You can do that if you're a history major. <laughs> uh, it's 
it's fun to observe, right? And I'm not sure what part of the cycle I'm in. I decided early on, 12 years in now, I decided early on that this was a labor of love and uh, and a hobby. I drew a clear line there, and I was primarily doing it as an exercise in self-preservation and improvement for myself, not for any practical or commercial concern. I mean, I've talked to sponsors and stuff, but to be honest, I really, really hate commercials when I'm listening to podcasts, so I'm not going to do that. And there just isn't enough money in any of that stuff to move the needle for me. It's really not a lot. Unless you have billions of downloads, it doesn't make any sense. So I stopped really uh, paying attention to numbers in this whole thing. I just tried to get the show out every couple of weeks. But weirdly to imagine, this is really weird to, to wrap your head around, we've had multiple millions of downloads from around the world. And I don't even know how to containerize that number. Each of those might be some individual, you, for instance, at some point in their lives, looking for some combination of information, entertainment, or inspiration. I get that personal touch point, but I can't wrap my brain around the abstract of millions of those. I do get a bit of a satisfied feeling about the 400 plus hours of content we have created at this point available for you now. All free. That's a goodly chunk of work, good body of work, and by my calculations represents about a million words of content that I've written. That's four to five goodly books of material, so that's pretty good. So thank you all, whoever you are, wherever you are, and whenever you are for facilitating my Madness, no. My personal journey of creation, I appreciate it. I think the lesson here may be is that you, yes, you, as an individual, can start something for no apparent reason, and it can be the proverbial snowball that creates an avalanche. And for me, it's been the personal connections and friends and the opportunities for connection that are the best part. You might find fame and fortune. Who knows? Put yourself in the running shoes of Anne Malam. You're running in Baltimore at 5 o'clock in the morning, and you keep running by the homeless shelter. You think to yourself, you know what would be a great idea? If someone were to invite these folks out for a run and potentially transform their lives. And so she started back on my feet with that one small thought and that one kick of a snowball. So I ask you, my friends, what's your snowball? On with the show. It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. Form series. The first chapter. I'm going to do a series now on running form. It's been one of those things that I've been doing for so long, and and there's a lot of those things I've been doing for so long, that I forgot how important and useful it is to people. But like all these simple things, once I get started thinking about it, it gets bigger and bigger until then it's no longer useful anymore to you. So I'm going to chunk this up into useful pieces and create separate audios that you can use. This first piece is going to be the introduction on form and an overview of some of the the resources, some of the influences, 
And then I'll do a few pieces that are more prescriptive that you can carry with you as you are practicing. So quick overview. Whenever people ask me a question about running, whether it is how to train for a race or what shoes to wear, the answer many times starts with a discussion of form. And it's ironic because no one ever teaches you running form and no one is looking for advice on form unless they're injured. It's not like other sports. In golf, you initially spend hours of effort and time on the mechanics. Maybe it's because running is seen as such a basic human thing, a human movement, that no one ever considers the need to look at form in new runners. And maybe coaches know that it's just hard to rewire people's form and it takes patience, so they just skip it. They move on to the next easier thing and hope the form problems, you know, they work themselves out. And the trouble with ignoring form is manifold. Form is at the core of most other things in running. Form is the base condition for running well, running efficiently, and running faster. Form is the starting point for the more nuanced mechanics of running up a hill or running down a hill or running long or fast or on different surfaces. It all starts with form. Like most other things about our sport, form seems simple but is in itself an entire body of knowledge. How does one learn proper running form? Where does one go to learn it? Well, most coaches, most seasoned runners know the basics of good running form. Most running sources will provide the rudimentary tenets of good form. Most people know good form when they see it, and most people know bad form when they see it. But isn't everyone just born with the basic ability to run? Yes and no. We are all born with the same basic running equipment that we have evolved to chase prey on the savanna millennia ago, but in the modern world, many times it gets programmed out of us. We put our feet in shoes with clunky heels, and we ride around in cars, and we sit at desks. The running design of our bodies and our natural mechanics, they're in there somewhere. But how do you rediscover them? And this was very well narrated by Christopher McDougall in Born to Run. It's a great read. It also kicked off the barefoot running craze, what, a dozen years ago now? And he noted that when you come from this sedentary environment and start to run for real, your form is going to be bad. And more than that, he verbalized something a lot of us were already thinking, which was that most of the technology, i.e. running shoes, did not promote good form, they instead masked the effects of bad form. So, the good news is that he made people aware of the natural evolutionary running form that we were designed with, and the bad news, if you want to consider it bad news, was a lot of people made that leap to minimalist or barefoot running too quickly and hurt themselves. So you may ask, why do I care? about having good form. Why not just run more? Won't running eventually just straighten up my form? Good question. First of all, 
You care because all those things that you want to get out of your running, they, those things are made better or made worse by form. If you have bad form, you're way more likely to get injured. If you have bad form, you won't be able to move efficiently. If you have bad form, you won't be able to sustain that form over longer distances. Good form makes running easy and fun, or at least easier and funner. And yes, in a way, more running will make your form better, especially running faster. It's hard to go fast with bad form. The If you try to do that, you'll probably get injured before your form gets better. Think of your form as like a propeller on an airplane or a wheel on a car. If that propeller or wheel is weird-shaped or misweighted, it's only going to run for a few minutes before the force of that weirdness causes it to shatter. And the faster it spins, the worse it gets. So yeah, running more and faster will fix your form if you survive the process. There are a couple other notable sources that have addressed running mechanics in the last few decades or so. And the first was the pose method by Nicholas Romanoff. Uh, the second was Chi Running by Danny Dreyer, who we've talked to. I would recommend all these books. I'd read them all. Read them all. And these are great reads, and all of them agree on the basic elements of good form. And all of them will give you some direction on how to rediscover your natural running mechanics. But like all enthusiastic works, they tend to go too far in places and make unsupported leaps. Nothing malicious, just over-enthusiasm. Caveat emptor. The useful bits are the science, uh, the breakdown of the mechanics, and the practice examples. The science talks to how our bodies are really well designed for running. Good form allows you to take advantage of these evolutionary adaptations. We have this big butt that sticks out the back as a counterweight that, to keep us upright. We have this marvelous connected spring system from the plantar up through the Achilles and the hamstring that is this natural shock absorber. And our ability to sweat and burn fat, they're just amazing adaptations for endurance. It's all quite mind-boggling how well we are designed for running. And then if you start breaking down the mechanics of good form, you look at each individual movement and determine what is the optimal form of that specific movement. Romanoff does this particularly well. And then there's the practice. Each of these sources will tell you what to do and how to practice. Everything from drills to cadence music, all this stuff. You can relearn that form that you were gifted with by your homo erectus forebears. And I will create some specific audio to walk or <laughs> run you through it. But the bottom line is you want to run upright with a bit of forward lean at the ankle, a fairly fast cadence, and a quick light foot strike on the forefoot, right? You want to minimize wasted movement. As Romanov says, running is falling. Your form is simply the way you catch yourself falling forward. So to close this introductory piece, find a friend and have them video you running. Get that video from the front, from the side, and the back. Get some normal running, some slow, some faster paces, 
and take a look and just look at it. Just observe what are you doing and compare that, what you're doing, to what a professional runner might do. Look at some video of some some professionals, some elite runners, and watch some videos of the great runners and observe the simplicity and beauty in their form. And next time, we'll synergize all that stuff into practice. But for now, just get that baseline of where you are and think about what's possible. And now for today's featured interview. Katie, you're back. Give us the two other words on who you are and what you do. So I'm Katie Sherratt, and I'm fortunate enough to be the CEO of Back on My Feet. And uh, Back on My Feet is a national nonprofit. We're now in 13 cities. We're just about to launch in Denver in a few short weeks. And we help individuals experiencing homelessness and addiction achieve self-sufficiency. And we do that through running and community and connecting them to employment resources. Yeah, it's a great story. And I'm really interested to see how the organization has changed. When I first started talking about, or, you know, it was one or two cities, right? It was Philadelphia, it was Boston. And it seems like you've transformed into sort of a mainstream, almost corporate NGO at this point with the professional Mm -hmm. management and the high-powered board and all that stuff. How's the organization changed since uh, since I first discovered it? It has grown a lot. It grew very rapidly early on and uh, in terms of spreading to a number of different cities because, unfortunately, there's a need in, in nearly every city in the U.S., but also usually a lot of runners in most cities who want to find a way to give back. And if they can do that through running, then why not join us on one of our morning runs? And I think what also had to evolve, as any nonprofits do, is we had to make sure we were stable. We had the right structure, the right tools, the right resources to really ensure that any of the funding we receive is effectively utilized and that our program is as impactful as it can be. So that's what we've done in terms of building out more employment partnerships to connect our members to appropriate job, we've really added to not just the running aspect of the program, but really a more comprehensive health and wellness approach. So our members, we work with Cigna to do health and wellness training. And that can be, how do we on a budget? That can be yoga stretching to keep you strong while you're running. Um, It can be any myriad of, of health aspects. Um, that really help our members just achieve and sustain healthy lives. Right. I mean, I love this idea from the beginning because it just made sense mm-hmm. to me because I talked to so many people who have mm-hmm. turned their lives around, right? They've gone through this transition, mm-hmm. whether it was from being 300 pounds or being a drug addict or whatever it was, just the transformational mm-hmm. nature of endurance sports and running in general. And so you mm-hmm. using that as a way to lift people up out of homelessness, I think it just resonates Absolutely. with me. I think it's a great idea. And it seems like you're being very yeah. successful. We are. I mean, over 70% of our members who start in our program achieve self-sufficiency. And they're all doing the running aspects of the program, which is the 5.45 a.m. three times a week. And we're really big on commitment. We have to maintain that at 90% attendance. And I think for a lot of folks that the running just becomes that tool. It's a way to channel emotions, uh, anything negative that's going on. It's really, as a lot of us use running and exercise, it really is a way to relieve stress, a way for them to think through things, work through things. And the way we do running, it's no one runs alone, right? We run as a community and they meet volunteers from the local communities. And that's what's beautiful about what we do is that they're running alongside folks, doing the very same activity they are. And at that moment in time, there's no difference between them and them and us. There's no difference whatsoever. That label of homelessness just gets shared completely, and they get a label of runner. 
which is so much more empowering and really just helps them start to see what they can achieve that they maybe never thought they could. Right. It's such a great leverage point. It's such a keystone idea because you're not giving people stuff, right? It's not a charity in the sense that you're giving them stuff, which is actually, that can be debilitating to people emotionally Mm -hmm. and mentally that they have to be helped, right? What you're doing is you're saying it's more of a hand up than a handout, right? Mm -hmm. It is. It is very much a hand up. At the end of the day, we provide the environment, the tools, the resources, the connections to people in the community, but the members are doing it for themselves. That's the difference maker for them is that they feel that sense of achievement when they were on the first mile, the third mile, do a 5K, do a 10K. And that's the emotional transformation that they need to go through to then be able to go through the more practical aspects, which is find a job, feel confident going through that interview process, get that job, keep that job. Um, You can't do any of that if you don't have the right psychological and emotional framework within yourself to do that. Yep, and I get this story all the time, which is they do something like a marathon or a 10K or whatever Mm -hmm. it is, right? They do something, a triathlon, and they have this moment where they sort of go, wait a second, if I can do that, what else can I do that I didn't think I could do, right? So it sort of breaks the the frame, you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. it opens up. It's pattern breaking, I guess, how I would put it, how Tony Robbins would put it anyhow. Absolutely. It's pattern breaking. It completely changes the way they think about themselves, the way they see themselves. And it really does help them to break down maybe negative tendencies or, you know, maybe negative patterns or things they would lean into that weren't as healthy for them. And it becomes a positive way to channel thoughts, feelings, emotions. Um, it works. So many of our members will say that. It's like the, pre- the thing that running is now the thing that I use if I'm having a bad day and I'm starting to doubt myself and starting to question things, I just go for a run and I instantly feel better after it. And it, so it really does work for so many of our members. But the thing is, it's also many of our members run marathons. Over 400 of them have now run marathons. Many of them have run multiple marathons. Mm. Some of them are ultra runners mm. running 100 milers. Right. But some yeah. of our folks just come out and walk. This isn't a run and it's in competition against anyone else. This is about what you need to take away from the program to be the best version of yourself. And so some of our members, some of our most successful members from a career perspective, one woman went from working with us living in a homeless shelter to getting a degree from Harvard University in psychology. She never ran a day in her life with us. She walked Monday, Wednesday, Friday, but she had 100% attendance. She was there every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And for her, it was about getting out there, walking, and meeting people from the community and feeling like she had support. So I think it's, it's all levels. It's all abilities. And I think that's really important to keep it open yeah. to as many folks as possible. Yeah, sure. And just that structure, I still use that structure on myself. I've been running for years, and I'm not homeless, but just mm-hmm. this past month, I was feeling a little bit lost. So I did um, mm-hmm. 14 days of getting up at 5 a.m. and running five miles in the woods. And I challenge anyone to do that and not have it reset their head. Right. Yeah. I hate you. I was having, I've been having a rough time personally. And I went out on Friday, what, last Friday with one of our members. We were filming a piece and I have an autoimmune. I have a couple of hip issues. Like my body isn't really built for running anymore. And so I always worry when I'm going out and I'm having to run with a member who I know is training for a marathon is going to be way quicker than me. And this member was just so encouraging. Like I did the full two miles, which doesn't sound a lot to a lot of people, I realized. But when I thought I'd tweak my back the day before, that was a lot. 
Um, we went real slow. We took it at a pace I could manage. We did a lot of stretching afterwards. And that's the thing. Those morning runs, it really is about those connections that you make. And running can, regardless of whether you're homeless or not, running um, can help you. Um, regardless of whatever stage of our life it can. And the way we do it is by making sure we're there for each other while we're doing it. Yeah, yeah. It's the community bit, right? So that's another one of the interlocking mm-hmm. pieces is the community and the support. Mm-hmm. The sense of belonging, mm-hmm. right? Um, sense yeah. of being in a club. Such a great idea. I wonder why nobody thought of this before. Or maybe they have. Maybe It's funny. Uh, I, feel like, I feel forms. like I think there's a few copycats out there now that have kind of heard the idea, seen it. And maybe they didn't hear the idea and they just had it themselves. It's morphed into slightly different forms. And that's great to see because I think, honestly, society and honestly some donor um, – uh, groups like foundations and all the more traditional entities that fund nonprofits are starting to understand that to tackle homelessness, you cannot just be, okay, here's a home and here's a job. It's not going to work, right? They have to right. have a community of support function. They have to have some kind of outlet, whether it's running, walking, some form of wellness activity that helps them um, face the challenges of life. We all do need that. And so it's been really great to see as we've grown how we've helped push the needle in that space and get organizations, entities, and just individuals in general to really appreciate the need for this within the space. Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, you really have grown. You've changed the dynamic of the organization. How do you do that? How do you make that transition to sort of like a corporate NGO without losing the core focus of the mission? I'm going to be honest, it's not easy. It was a lot of sleepless nights when I first stepped in, recognizing just how much I needed to move the needle on this organization to ensure it was sustainable and to ensure that it could continue to grow and have as much impact as possible. And the fact is everyone that touches the organization or has touched it in the past is incredibly passionate about what we do and how we operate. And how. And, but it is about, now it's about how we operate and how we work and what skills we need as an organization to really have the most impact. And so we've made some shifts structurally as an organization to make sure that we've got more program staff on the ground and fewer admin, fewer overhead fundraising resources. We've got to get smarter about how we raise money. I mean, at the end of the day, people always say, you run it like a business. And then like with a question mark on the end. And I'm like, yeah, because if we don't tackle homelessness, in as honestly, quite honestly, as ruthless a way as we tackle other things, and we don't question everything we do and make sure that it's the absolute best approach and do it the most effective way, we're failing our members and we're failing anybody else that could be a part of our program. So I actually apology for that. I'm like, I think it's yeah. more nonprofits should really take that corporate approach. It's what attracts corporations to the table. It's actually what attracts some of the bigger foundations to have conversations with us because we take that aspect so seriously. But at the end of the day, we don't lose sight of the member stories and the emotional journeys and the transformations they go through. You hear those, you put those front and center in your marketing and you put them right in front of everyone um, because that is why everyone wants to be a part of what we do. It is about being really focused and really structured and corporate in a sense, but never losing sight of just the inspirational journeys that our members go through and making sure they're front and center in all of your conversations and in all of your. Yeah, that mission has to color the strategy and the execution mm-hmm. and then the tactical Absolutely. bits that come out of that. But, I mean, you're the CEO, right? So most CEOs, mm-hmm. they're going to stand up every year and talk about organizational growth strategy. So what's mm-hmm. that? And there's different types of growth within that. You have funding mm-hmm. growth. You have growth mm-hmm. in the, you know, the existing mm-hmm. offering, more cities, more geographies. Mm-hmm. And finally, you're going to have growth in terms of your 
potentially expanding into adjacent product offerings, if I can put it that way. Sorry to switch mm-hmm. the corporate speak nope. on you. But, but you okay. know, how are you looking at all those things over the next five, ten years? Yeah, so we've really got very well, – part of um, this corporate evolution of the organization was to get really laser-focused on who our program best serves. At the end of the day, there are folks, unfortunately, in the home – who are lumped into this word of homelessness who, quite honestly, need more mental health service focus than they do potentially our program. Um, so we have got really smart about which types of facilities and shelters work the best for us transitional homeless facilities where they're kind of anywhere from six months to two years is, is the best time frame for our program to be the most effective. So we've got laser focused on that. We know the exact number of those in every city we're in, and we plan to grow to, the, to each of those. In some of the cities, we're there. We're going to be small niche player in some of those cities until you see that transitional homeless um, housing expand a little bit more. And so in other cities, for example, though New York and LA, we've got lots of headroom. We just received a, a really big grant from the Stand Together Foundation earlier this year to focus on just that, growing out our LA and our New York market. And um, the third piece is we have so many of those corporate connections now in each of the cities that we're in. We have so many people that are interested in launching us in other cities that we do have a pretty ambitious growth plan in terms of new cities. So whilst, yes, we're going to vote, focus on those cities that have the ability to expand, we're also going to be focusing on new markets. And, and between we're literally in a conversation about a funding conversation that could change the game for us quite literally. I mean, we could be in 30 cities in the next four years. There's a second tier of cities that really need this, right? So if I draw a 20-mile circle around where I am in Massachusetts, you know, you've got Boston, but there's cities like Springfield and Lawrence, and these are that second tier that really need this, right? It would be very effective there. And that's part of the strategy is some of them, so we're, we're still not in some major cities we should be in, but we're also not taking advantage of like a hub and spoke approach of, okay, we're in Boston, right. there's three other cities around Boston that we should also be in. And we may not, there may not be as many transitional homeless beds there, but there's enough for us to have a functioning, successful program and to really support members in those communities. So yeah, we're definitely looking at that. We're looking at that in Philadelphia too. Obviously that's our oldest chapter. And so we've yeah, looked at yeah. how we connect, you know, not just Philly, but over in New Jersey and kind of how we do that a club and spoke approach there as well. Yeah, yeah. And how do you franchise that to keep the effectiveness of the mission in those mm-hmm. second tier organizations? Yeah. But uh, mm-hmm. and it is a franchise. Yeah. It's classic franchise. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that's great. Well, for now, One of the things that really for now we're not yet franchised, but we have thought about that model in terms of allowing volunteers. Once we get through this organizational restructure, the next year or so, we will be in a much better position to have a package where we can say to a really strong local advocate in a community, "Okay, here's what you need to do to bring back on my feet to your city and give right. them all the support yep. and tools that they'll need to do it." Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And there's existing organizations that you could hook into to uh, leverage, too. So, no, that's mm-hmm. good. Yep. Um, one of the things that really surprised me when I looked at your demographics was that it's a big chunk of men, older men, who are your mm-hmm. um, members or clients. Mm-hmm. Why are they underserved? Why are, is that the homeless segment that this works for? It works for many segments, right? We have our conversations about moving more effectively into the youth segment, but I think the challenge in this space with a lot of nonprofits, people want to put their money where it feels the best to put it, right? So youth feels like that makes sense, right? You can really change the course of trajectory of that, that individual's life. Women does get a lot of, of attention and funding these days, but we're going to go where the need is. 
right? And the need is in the demographic that we serve. They're the guys that if we don't help them and we don't work with them, they'll be the ones that you see on the street corner or under the bridge or wherever else it is in any of your given cities where you see street homelessness. And so um, those are the folks that we really focus our attention on. And I think a lot of it is, they. I know, I know this was a member even said this to me. He's like, I really like to coach and mentor some of the younger guys that come through this program because they've not made the mistakes I've made. They've not seen the life I've seen and I'm ready to change. And I know you guys can get me there. And they really yeah. help some of our younger members kind of understand the life trajectory of some of these other um, more senior members who can say like, hey, you should lean into this program because this could literally change the, the course of the trajectory of your life. And um, because it is, it changes it for our members no matter what age they are. Yeah. So, no, that just was interesting to me because that's not a demographic mm-hmm. that typically gets talked about, right? No, it's not, it's not a demographic yep. that gets talked it's, about, and it's certainly not usually in someone's corporate social responsibility parameters. But, again, we make no apologies for that. That's where the need is, and, and we've had so much success yep. with our folks. So um, I listened to your uh, Lance Armstrong interview, and he was making fun of your Northumbrian uh, accent. I, well, I kind of like that, so... Sorry, right. I gave him a lot of, I, I don't know if I can say, I was about yeah. to say a word, I'm not allowed if I can, so if I can say, but don't worry, I gave him a lot, <laughs> uh, a lot back that he didn't necessarily put you in You did, you did. Um, I, was, I, was proud, uh, <laughs> I was proud of you. I could tell you had the gloves yeah. up there. Yeah, I was proud of you. <laughs> I did. Um, it's how we operate yeah. in England. It's how we communicate with folks. So I was, I was, I was surprised. Well, yeah, I mean, that, uh, yeah especially so in well. Manchester, yep. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yep. So what are the most common questions you get asked about this when you're out and about? What do people want to know? Like, people always ask, because people always make the assumption, because people hear the word homelessness, and then they immediately translate that word to what they see on the street. So they can't quite make the connectivity between, you guys are out running with these people that I'm seeing on the street. So it takes a little bit of conversation to explain how and where we recruit from, that we, you know, we focus on homeless shelters. But also, the reality is, many of our members have been in that unfortunate circumstance where they've also lived on the street and spent many years on the street. One of our members, Eli, who's actually coming with me to a donor conference this weekend to share his story, um, did that 20 years in and out of living on the streets and in shelters. And he was a U.S. Army veteran. And when he came out of service, he just couldn't figure out how to get his life back together. And I think that those questions around running homelessness, those aren't two words you would immediately put together. But I will tell you, in the last few years, people get it a lot quicker than they used to. People are like, oh, no, I get it. That empowerment aspect, that really yeah. helping them to believe in themselves. Like People are getting it a lot more in the last few years. And I think that's because you've seen other types of organizations start to recognize the importance of that. And I think the connection between mental health and physical health is a lot more mainstream right mm-hmm. now, right? So people don't have to hide that um, behind a curtain anymore. Absolutely. So and you've seen that a lot, in, especially in the C-suite, right? A lot of those guys are uh, type mm-hmm. A, those uh, ladies and guys. Yep. So that's where you mm-hmm. find your Ironman triathletes. Mm-hmm. So what are the, the three biggest barriers to this problem, to this homelessness problem that uh, you see? So what we see, and I, I typically will talk about it in the context of barriers to us being more successful, um, we need the government mandate of housing first to be more flexible and allow for more transitional homeless shelters to be built. Emergency shelters, and I see it here in San Francisco, there's too many of these 90-day type facilities, which just isn't an effective enough time period for someone to more psychologically and practically to self-sufficiency. Like, it's just not doable. And so we really need, like, some of that policy level change to happen for our program to be in even more places 
Um, I think the other biggest challenge is awareness. So thank you so much for letting us do something, things like this, because the more people, we don't have a big marketing budget. We like to spend our money on the program and the members. So whenever we get opportunities like this, we jump on it because the more people that know about us, the more they can check out our website, figure out ways to get involved. If they're not a runner, there's still plenty of ways they can volunteer to interact and support the members. Um, And we're always looking for new companies to come to the table as well. So I think that's the other piece. And I think the last piece is obviously housing, right? So it doesn't matter how many transitional homeless shelters you build in San Francisco. If there is no form of affordable housing to move into at the end of that, um, then it's still a losing battle, right? And we right. really made yeah. sure that we work with partnerships the best we can, right, to connect with organizations and entities to showcase just how committed and dedicated our members are. And so they're much more, we act as a referral and a recommendation for our members to move in um, to housing. And so I think that they're probably the major challenges that we see right now. Yeah, in San Francisco, that's a special situation because there's so many homeless there. And there's just no housing for anybody. So mm-hmm. it's, California uh, in it's a tough yeah. California in general. Yeah, same uh, thing as down in San yeah. Diego, same thing, right? So what about, I'm familiar with how the program works. You have these folks in the mm-hmm. shelters. We're bringing them out three times a week. We're doing this morning run. And if they are mm-hmm. successful in that, they can stick with that, then you're giving them opportunities to get employment, opportunities for housing, mm-hmm. the next step along mm-hmm. the line. What do you do after that? Six months later, that person's mm-hmm. got a, a nine-to-five warehouse job somewhere and yep. has a, a one-room apartment somewhere. What do you do then? How do you extend that yeah, so into we, a successful we, life? As far as we're concerned, once a back-on-my-feet member, always a back-on-my-feet member. So when they successfully complete the program and get employment and housing, they become alumni. And we have alumni groups in each of our chapters. And in some of our cities and some of our chapters, we've actually been able to afford to hire alumni coordinators. In two of those cities, it's actually been former members who now work for us as alumni coordinators. And their job is to stay connected to our members to provide additional career counseling. Because for most of our members, you mentioned a warehouse job. So maybe they start there, but most of our members are looking for that next step because we've shown them what they can achieve. Right? We've shown them that things yeah. are possible for them. And so we really work with them on further education, further skills, further training, to help them sustain the job they've got, work through any conflict in the workplace, things like that, and provide additional uh, opportunities to connect. If they can't make the morning runs, we'll maybe um, organize a social activity to connect with other members so that they maintain that right. community aspect that was so critical to their transformation in the first place. Right. It's almost like um, AA where the members themselves become the next generation of mentors. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and right. our... Alumni coordinators, the guy that works with in New York, Derek, just does a phenomenal job working with the members, just a signal wellness training with them. Because there's no one better to talk them through their experiences and someone that's been through some similar experiences themselves. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll move you towards the exit here. You've been very generous with your time. Okay. So tell us what are the ways people can help and uh, where can they yeah. go to find out more? So they can go to our website, www.backonmyfeet.org. Please do. Um, check us out. There's a great national video on that. Four minutes. It will tell you everything you need to know about our programs, the impact metrics, and uh, all of our mem- some of our member stories. Um, you can also, we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Back On My Feet. Um, I also have a, a Twitter and an Instagram, uh, at Katie Sherrod. Um, so please follow us, get involved. There are ways to volunteer. If you're a runner, you can run a race for us. We have bibs 
to multiple races in the U.S. and a lot of the international marathons. And then if you've got a company that you think maybe has employment opportunities or might want to get engaged for employee you know, engagement activities, um, there's a partnership at backonmyfeet.org email that you can email to connect with us to learn more about that. All right. Brilliant. Thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. All right. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. The Happiness Curve, Navigating the Cliff. I spoke to you a little bit at the end of the last show about one of the books I started reading over vacation. The Happiness Curve by Jonathan Rausch, subtitled, Why Life Gets Better After 50. And I haven't got any further in it, (laughs) but the basic premise is that you're happy as a kid, miserable as an adult, and then get happy again when you're a senior. I reread an article this week, helpfully forwarded to us by our friend Tim, that went into the same subject, and I found it fascinating and instructive. And usually I just scan these long-form articles because who has the time or the attention to read 5,000 words? And I think that's what I did the first time I saw this article go by. So it ended up as blah, 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 old people, blah, 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 happy in my summary. But The Atlantic, the magazine The Atlantic, it publishes many articles on happiness. So maybe it wasn't this one I read, but that same abundance speaks to how much mindshare happiness gets in the public as zeitgeist, at least with the Atlantic demographic. Regardless, the article I read this week was, Your Professional Decline is Coming Much, in parentheses, Sooner Than You Think, by Arthur C. Brooks. The link is in the show notes. He starts talking about the happiness curve, so that was kind of nice. I knew what he was talking about, and his own personal project to understand what is happiness. And he answers the headline-grabbing question, do you have a predictable decline as well? And this decline is, of course, intertwined with your happiness. Guess what? Life gets happier after 50, but only in certain situations. There's a lot of things you can do to make yourself happy or unhappy when you get there. It ends up being a mindset thing as much as an ability thing. And guess what? There is a predictable decline in your abilities at certain points in your life. But again, it's not cut and dry. It's as much a mindset thing that you can turn to your advantage. And I'm going to cherry pick some points that I found particularly intriguing and share them with you, a little commentary. So there's a steep decline in your abilities around 50 years old. It's all individual, of course, and everybody is different, but the decline is inevitable. And there are two types of decline. There's the physical and the mental. The physical is pretty obvious, but the mental is what affects your career and your ability to perform in those career-related things. What tends to make you unhappy is if you were very successful at what you did in the previous season of your life. And that is true in athletics and in everything else. This is why you see so many athletes having a rough time of it when they retire. They invested so much of their self-worth in that ability, that achievement, that when it's gone, they're miserable. They lose a big part of how they define themselves. 
And this is true for whatever you're successful at. It sounds obvious, almost to the point of cliche. But the most miserable people in older age are those that can't let go. They continue to value themselves based on what they were and what they could do. And those things don't exist anymore. So this is also another way rich people are miserable, if that makes you feel better, because they have always measured their self-worth by having money, having power, getting money, getting power. And when they don't do that, they don't have a way to be happy with what they have. So being super successful in the meat of your life correlates to having a rough transition to old age. The more successful you think you are, the more miserable you are to lose it. The author then lists some of the careers and where the measurable uh, inflection point is, where the cliff is. Writers tend to do their best work in their 40s and early 50s. Entrepreneurs and startup people, they do their best work under the age of 30. Yeah. And take note of this. College professors are very effective the older they get. This is because different roles, different jobs, different careers require different types of capabilities. And he draws a nice distinction between two types of intelligence. You know, think of it as abilities or skills, intelligence. One is fluid intelligence and the other is crystallized intelligence. Fluid intelligence, that's what the entrepreneurs use. That's the ability to surf that wave and come up with new and different and unstructured ideas and concepts. As you get older, you lose that. Crystallized intelligence is gained by having a lifetime of learning, collecting, and testing. These people have a vast store of knowledge that they can draw on for pattern matching and deductive reasoning, hence the late life effectiveness of professors and coaches. So, my friends, I did not tell you this to depress you. <laughs> it's under your control, though. There are things you can do to be happy as you make the transition. You folks who may be getting close or experiencing the transition will hopefully find this useful. And you young pups who are still in the productive part of your life can lay the groundwork for a smoother transition when you get there. Isn't this interesting? How this is totally supported by the concepts in The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle that we talked about a few episodes back? The surest way to make yourself miserable is to live in the past or worry about the future? The best way to be happy is to be in the now? Or as this article concludes, to live the season of life you are in. And the Buddhists call this third season of life the season of bliss. Leave that second season behind and enjoy the bliss. There is nothing inherently good or bad about this science, about these conclusions. It is what it is. As you hit 50, your abilities change. They decline in some areas, and you should adapt your life accordingly. You shouldn't be fighting battles in the startup world, probably. You should be transforming from doing to teaching. And that is a perfectly valid way to make a living and to stay engaged and to be fulfilled. Help the next generation. Use what you have learned to make a difference. Become a master instructor. It's inevitable, but it's a natural cadence. Learn how to lean into it, and it will be the happiest season of your life. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. 
Well, my friends, that was fun, huh? You got up at 5 a.m. and ended up at the end of the Run, Run, Live podcast, episode 4-411. You, you, my friend, you're amazing. I have no idea whether I'm going to survive this summer with the uh, the sore butt and the sore knee and the hot weather and the biting flies. I'm a hot mess, but it is the season I'm in, yeah? I'll give you a couple of tips to take you out. First tip, which I haven't tested yet, but seems to be corroborated from multiple sources, is how to make a do-it-yourself deer fly trap. Now, the deer flies are awful this time of year. I got literally chased out of the woods by them last week. So even if you ha- you're wearing your big hat and you've got the bug spray on, they still harass you in their multitudes. So you can buy the pre-made deer fly patches, and I have some of those that I'm about to test, which are a sticky patch that you put on the back of your hat, and they get stuck on it. Or, or you can make them. And the instructions are to take some blue tape. Apparently the flies really like blue, and that painter's tape works great. You create a 2 by 6 patch on the back of your hat, And then you apply a layer of an off-the-shelf product called Tanglefoot, which, if you're not familiar with it, this is sticky goop that you apply to tree trunks to keep the bugs from climbing up them. They get stuck in it. And that's it. You have just created a deer fly trap that you can put on the back of your hat, and it will catch the flies or enough of them to solve your problem, or at least make you feel good about fighting back a little bit. The second tip is for your bottles. If you carry water bottles, either in your hand or in your belt or whatever, right, you have these water bottles, you may notice that they start to get kind of kind of gross. They start to taste a bit moldy as you use them for a while, especially if you've been putting sports drinks in them. The sugar, it can't be helped. The sugars get turned into wildlife. You can, you can wash them out. You can rinse them with a bleach solution. You can put them in the dishwasher. But once the little beasties get in, there's it's really a losing battle and i don't want to gross you out but the problem is typically hiding in your nipples that's right that rubber bit that sticks out of the top of the bottle has a bunch of cracks and crevices in it that you can't get to to clean but guess what if you pull on that nipple you can usually get it to pop off and once you pop it off you'll see all the black stuff in there and you can scrub it out and then you can pop it back on. Good to go. So that's it. We went from form to homelessness to old age to moldy nipples. Such are the seasons of life. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. Take two, take three, take four, take five, take them all. Take take everything. Oh my goodness. Oh, I gotta hurry, hurry, hurry.